Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Curious on Earth podcast. I'm your host, Henry Sonuma, and this is my conversation with worker, author, musician, storyteller, and culture activist Stephen Jenkinson. I've been following Stephen's work for a couple of years now. I think I originally ran into it on James W. Gesso's uh, excellent Adventures Through the Mind podcast, so a shout out to James. And uh, Stephen is talking and uh, writing and performing music on themes such as death and grief and elderhood. Uh, for a part of his life, he worked in palliative care, so he's supported the dying processes of hundreds, if not thousands, of people and their their loved ones. And uh, he has quite a bit to say about our relationship with dying, both as individuals and as cultures. Um, the episode was shot around three months ago. Um, I had just become a father. My daughter at that point was seven weeks old. We had quite a rough start. Uh, instantly after being born, she was taken to the ICU. She uh, required emergency care. And for a while, it wasn't sure, uh, certain whether she'd even survive. And if so, with what kind of damage. But I'm pleased to say that uh, at some as I'm recording this introduction, uh, she is now four and a half months old and uh, is a healthy and uh, lovely, lovely little girl. So, yeah, like uh, reflex, reflections on the themes that uh, Stephen is handling in his work were, were very much present uh, during her time that she stayed in the hospital. And, uh, yeah, our conversation touched this part in my life quite uh, intensively. Also, there were some technical issues related to the streaming service that we used for the episode. And uh, after quite a bit of back and forth related to emails and files and uh, quite a bit of strenuous editing, I managed to piece together a quite solid hole, but uh, there's uh, around 10 minutes of video glitches around the 20 minute mark in the episode, but uh, the audio is fine and uh, I hope that you get uh, as much from the episode as I do. Um, Steven's thinking is very rich and also demanding. I feel that uh, rereading passages he's written, uh, like coming back to them after a longer time and re-listening to his interviews and uh, talks um, has been very beneficial in really getting what he's saying. So he's not especially easily approachable approachable as a thinker but I think it's very rewarding to give him the time that he he uh, deserves during the editing process of the episode I've listened to it, to it quite a number of times and I think it's like deepened my appreciation of what he's doing and uh, if you want to want to support the podcast uh, please consider subscribing on the Patreon page. I have two Patreon pages. One is for my Finnish audiences in Finnish and uh, one is in English and you'll find the link uh, in the description. And also, uh, please follow the podcast on YouTube and, and or your favorite streaming services. Uh, if the podcast is not on your favorite service and you would like it to be, please let me know and I'll see what I can do about it. And uh, as always, also please uh, like and share and all that stuff. It's helpful with the algorithms. And so without further ado, uh, here is my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. 
you said that we live in a culture that doesn't believe in endings. Would you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, the first thing to acknowledge is, uh, you know, I live here, you live there, and we have no business presuming immediately or inevitably that anything I have to say describes in any way, you know, where you live or how you live. So it's it's important to have that sort of cultural humility in place, you know. And I very much appreciate that, um, you know, that you're speaking to me in English since uh, my Finnish is not very good. <laughs> And uh, we wouldn't be able to proceed otherwise. So here, I can tell you that uh, uh, it's it's fair, it's even understated to acknowledge the obvious, which is in a time of, you know, relentless upselling, um, relentless uh, accumulation, relentless self-improvement, and the rest, it shouldn't surprise anybody that one of the covert um, enemies of the current regime is limit. There should, there should be no surprise there at all. It's, it's, uh, it's one of our favorite demons, you could say. Now, in actual fact, limit is the way by which our humanity appears to us and among us and uh, for the sake of the greater world. So as soon as you demonize limit, which is clearly the, the operating principle of the 21st century and the globalization that is accompanying it, then you'd have a circumstance where the world is in trouble. Because unlimited humans, that's not life's idea of a good time. And I don't just mean how many humans. I mean humans who seem to imagine that there's no limit to being human. In fact, being human is itself a limiting proposition, and it gives the world a chance to survive our, our successes, you know, which is, uh, I'm not sure that we can survive our successes, but I hope the world can. So, I mean, the final bit of the elaboration would be something like this. We have in English language, uh, apprehend and prehensile. Okay, comprehend as well. We know what these words mean separately, but what they all have in common is, is the root, the root word there. And it refers to the ability to do that, to grasp, which is why in English, the word grasp is a synonym for understand. But it's, it's quite an aggressive uh, action to, to hend, if you will, though we don't have that word anymore. So it seems to me that we have an, an experience among us known handily as the tool. We're all very fond of them when we need them and when they're close at hand, as we say. And the thing that marks hand work is that the hand is recognizable in the work, in the finished product. You can see an indi clear indication it was not made by a machine, it was made by hand. And people are obviously more urban people than not are coming around to the notion that there's something inherently reassuring about handmade things that machine made things can never confer upon us. So we have this word tool and, and what the, the tool does is it extends the range of the hand. It extends what the hand is capable of, but 
it's still limited by the fact that the hand and its functions are are available to you symbolically and mythologically in how the tool functions. So it extends the range of the hand with the limits of the hand still in mind and and in operation. We have a, a different word machine. It's not an exponential version of a tool, as I think you'll see momentarily. And what the, the hand is nowhere to be found in the machine, either in its machinations or in its products. And we're quite fond of that, unfortunately. So I'm suggesting to you that the way the machine works is it extends not the human hand at all. It extends the range of the human will instead. And as soon as you have an unlimited extension of the human will, well, you certainly have the 21st century. That's part of what I mean by it. Yeah, this brings to mind uh, Finnish philosopher Terevaden. Uh, uh, I don't know if he coined the word, but he's popularized the word. In Finnish, it's syntytieto. I don't really know how actually to translate uh, to English. It's not like directly translatable, sure. I guess. But uh, one of the viewpoints he emphasizes is that our fossil capitalistic system tends to you know when you use the distinction of a tool and a machine generally uh, hand hand built tools at least have been tools that is often possible to know where the tool came from who built it uh maybe who has used it before you and where it's going after uh, after uh, some time in the future you you let go of that tool you pass it on or your uh it's not repairable any, anymore mm-hmm. or something like that. And uh, Vaden's uh, one central idea is that one central tendency of fossil capitalism is to create modes of production that make it impossible to know where your tools are coming from, who made them, uh, what kind of resources were used in the process of making them, and, and therefore also uh, pushes us like more far apart uh, from seeing the value and feeling the value of the tools we use. And and yeah, this is just like a, a tangent that came to mind from that, that the, like the more complex machinery we use, uh, the more difficult it is to, in a way, like understand or grasp the relationship uh, we have with them and understand like the kind of effect they're having. Certainly, lives. and because of that, the more compelling it is to leave all this understanding, all the consequences, all the utilities to the to the professionals, to the people who who were made f- for whom the the machines were made, basically. And it's not for me; it's not for anybody my age that all this machinery, including the one you and I are talking back and forth across now. This was not made with people my age in mind. Nobody could care less about people my age in the design field, needless to say. So so there's an immense amount of reclamation to do, but all of it is going to look like we're going, quote, unquote, backwards. And that's important uh, observation to make is that there's a lot of disinclination when you have a progress-addicted cultural uh, landscape that uh, any challenge to that will, in the intolerance of the moment, will look retrogressive 
you know, the simple willingness to slow the hell down is not retrogressive. It simply challenges progress. And challenging progress is seems to be uh, a basic social and, and civil responsibility, I think. So that's what I'm doing in, in observing that, um, you know, that it, it's it, both the mark of elderhood in a, in a civil Western culture and a mark of his degradation at the same time when you observe that elders, by definition, are visitations of limit and frailty and endings upon the greater culture. That's what they are. That's what they're d- supposed to be. That's what their principal function and their principal value is. Not only utility, but worth is to be found in their limitations. And they visit those limitations upon us in you know, human interaction. And the failure to hold reg- into proper regard limits and frailties will have consequences for how we regard old people and elders in particular. And in my corner of the world, there is very little regard for old people and for elders. And so these things are clearly connected. Maybe it would be a good idea to clarify the distinction on how you use the words uh, old and elder, an old person and an elder. What's the difference sure. between them? Well, um, old person is a, is an undeniable, inescapable, and non-negotiable chronological reality that's dictated by the numbers on your birth certificate. You could say, so by definition, you're older in some, in some understandings of what time means. We're older than when we started this conversation. Not by much, and it doesn't appear to have any clear effect, but it's, it's tangentially true. So there is nothing to be admired in and of itself in persistence, I would say. And that's what being old is, is uh, the success of persistence. I suppose I should, I should relax a little bit and say, yeah, there's, there is some merit to it, but it has to be, the consequences have to be attached to something, to some greater purpose than survival in order for that to the meaning to become available and 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 uh, consequential for the body politic elder on the other hand elder is i mean often they coincide but an elder is not an elder by virtue of not dying an elder is an elder by virtue of obeying life much more than thwarting it or prevailing over it so Elders, my shorthand way of saying it would be the the clear mark of elderhood is that these are deepened people. But what has deepened them? Accomplishment? Uh, accumulation? No. They've tried that too. Only to discover these things are desperately in vain. So they're they're deepening. Elders deepening is a consequence of their their diminishment, not a consequence of their success. So in that sense, the, the parallel I've often drawn is the parallel to uh, to the crafting of wine, which I don't pretend to understand the alchemy of it, but uh, I do know good wine when I taste it, and I very much appreciate it. And a way of describing it would be wine begins its life as 500 gallons of grape juice. 
which is um, fine, but not a lot to wait for. And then time goes by, and some other thing happens as a consequence of this time going by, which the people in the business understand. And it's a, there's something magical about it, as well as something chemical. I suppose that's what the word alchemy means, magic chemistry. And on the other end of it, you have wine, but you don't have 500 gallons. You don't have what you started with. You have less by volume, less, maybe considerably less in order to achieve the depth of sensibility and fragrance and, 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 you know, tannins and, and the consequence for the, for the drinking of it and so on. All of that comes to you as a result of there being less available to you than when you started, than when it started. That's what elders are. There's less of them, but they're, they are themselves all the way through now. And what's the diminishment that happens as someone, I don't know if you could say, transform into uh, transforms into elderhood? Or Yeah, I would say reduced into elderhood. Well, I mean, you've just lived through it. You've lived through one example. And a rather hair-raising example it must have been that you go into pregnancy assuming in your calmer moments, assuming the best, or at least the average, the norm, the, the unspectacular. And then you've, you've learned now firsthand that even though the spectacular tends not to make the front page in what we're talking about now, there's a degree of spectacle to when things don't proceed as you were hoping or counting on, or imagining. And when this degree of happen of, of um, spectacle takes place, of course, you're more than glad, I assume, that you lived where you lived, lived, excuse me, and that you had recourse to medical professionals who knew what they were looking at, who knew the reasonable steps to yeah, take. Yeah, maybe just a just as a bit of background to the listeners before you go on. So, yeah, we had a child seven weeks ago, and she spent the first two weeks uh, in ICU. So it was a critical situation and we weren't even sure whether or not she would survive. And if so, if there would be like major brain damage, uh, but, but now she's apparently healthy and uh, home with yeah. us. So yeah, just as a background. So okay. sorry for the interruption, but uh, maybe it's a bit easier for the listeners to get a grasp of what we're talking about. And, and of course that's the circumstance as it is now. Now I, I have children, but they're in their thirties. And so we've cleared a certain number of childhood hurdles, but you know there's there's no more reassurance that gathers around you as time goes by that all shall be well, and that you've got some crazy stuff behind you, but it's all behind you now. I mean you've been you've been notified by life that you can have your plans, and that life will do what it does, and it doesn't include everybody living to 103 years old, thankfully or whatever we imagine our natural human entitlement to be. So this is, this is a one course of the diminishment I was talking about. It is, it is a very expensive education. Life education is extremely expensive because you pay for it through the frustration of your expectations, through the daunting and, and the undoing of your sense of mastery and control that you acquire these things and then 
quite easily, your sense of mastery and control, but you surrender them with great difficulty. But surrendering them is mandatory for you to be of any use as a, a kind of mythic and poetic presence in your community, which is what another word for elder, a kind of human mythic and poetic presence that is a manifestation of limit and frailty and ending. And it's sometimes there at the beginning of life, and it's sometimes there at the end of life, and sometimes it, it's sprinkled throughout. Would you talk a bit about the relationship between a wise old person and an elder? Do you think they're the same thing or not the same thing? I suppose. I mean, these are arbitrary phrases and it's arbitrary definitions I would give to them. But in the case that you're asking about here, I would say that, you know, one describes the other, that there's not much to be found between them. Uh, but in order to invoke the word wisdom, it's important to be a, a bit clear what you mean. You don't mean just the collective experience of a life because there's a lot of crazy old people. There's a lot of angry, desolate, depressed, despairing old people with all kinds of life experience behind all of that, driving it, even causing it. So, so these things in and of themselves, they're not, it's not that obvious. So the word wisdom is not the same thing as experience, at least not in English. So it's important, I think, to imagine that experience is basically passive and wisdom is basically active. Experience is, is what happens to you. Wisdom is, to a certain degree, what you're entrusted with and what you do with what you're entrusted with. I could go a little bit further and suggest to you that you could distinguish wisdom from prejudice. The word prejudice is, is an easygoing word, actually. It simply means in, in its original form, it means the claim to a, a priori understanding. In other words, you imagine you know something before, there's, before the something appears or takes place, that you have enough understanding of it to, to be well and, and properly prepared for its advent prejudge it's the root of prejudice so the problem with prejudices is that they're very easy to come by you inherit them you don't work at them you don't have to go around looking for evidence to to bolster your prejudices your prejudices basically take care of themselves you wake up in the morning you start worrying your worries and remembering your memories and so on and and within 20 minutes you have enough to keep your prejudices going all day with no further visitation. The amazing thing about wisdom is it's, it bears no resemblance, actually, to the way prejudices work. Wisdom takes the form of an active engagement with the present realities. Your wisdom, well, this is not the right phrase. Wisdom is, is a... Uh, a willingness to learn the particulars of your times and to have your life work or your spirit work dictated by the troubles of the times. So wisdom is very particular, very local, very specific, very native to its, to its home places. And so you can't translate the content of wisdom from one culture to another. 
no matter what the publishers try to do and the translators and all the rest, translations don't work and properly so because the wisdom, the particulars of the wisdom belong to the particulars of place and to the people that are there, you know, working on its behalf. On the other hand, you can translate, excuse me, you can inherit the example of a given generation undertaking its wisdom work or its spirit where you inherit the example, but not the content. The content is left for you as your generation to translate into the, you know, contending with the troubles that arise during the course of your lifetime. So it's a quite a radical difference really in orientation between what, how wisdom works and how prejudice claims to work, but doesn't actually. This sort of leads me back to, I mentioned the term syntutieto uh, before. And uh, as I mentioned, like one meaning of that word is like the like where the tools we use come from, where they go. But another meaning for, meaning for the word syntutieto is uh, it, it refers to a group of people, maybe a population of people, and how they're able to live in an intergenerationally sustainable and flourishing way in a particular environment at a particular time and place. And uh, how I understand the word wisdom is very related to this, that, that yeah, like uh, adding to what you just said about it, that wisdom seems to be an understanding uh, of how to make good choices in life in a particular situation and good choices that pertain to not just the individual but but that pertains to the relations that the individual has and that that also like connecting to what i said before about uh, some of the tendencies of of industrial fossil capitalism is that uh, the same way that it sort of like breaks the bonds of the syntotieto in the sense of us not being able to know about where our tools and the all the like uh, stuff that we use come from, but also that it it breaks the understanding uh, of how to live intergenerationally uh, in a particular time and place because it seems to have the tendency of replacing uh, all the particularities with something that's more general, that's like uh, generalizable. Uh, and and this i think is also something that you've been writing about and talking about in your work mm-hmm. yeah yeah the, the circumstance you're describing promises much and asks little exactly like a politician promises much asks very little as soon as you come up to an arrangement like that you should recognize seduction for what it is because that's what that is that's seduction and there's nothing in wisdom that seduces Because wisdom is a full-time job, including weekends and holidays. The maintenance of wisdom, the undertaking of wisdom, the uh, the carrying after wisdom, all of these things are, they're like farming, actually, now that I think about it. There's no, I mean, speaking as a farmer myself, there's no day off. There's no weekends and holidays accepted. There's no statutory holiday for farming. I mean, You're not farming actively in the sense of grueling physical work every moment of every day and night. That's true. But you are on call every minute and of every day and every night. And the principal job 
is to observe very well. We call it, jokingly, we refer to it here as watching the farm channel. So you're, you're working part of the time, but your, your devotion, your focus, your, uh, your discipline is called upon all the time. And that should be how we characterize the people among us who are responsible for the wisdom of our cultures. That should be their job. And it should be a highly esteemed job. Right? Not left people with nothing else to do. It's not an act of leisure. It's it's in it's an act that banishes leisure in the in the typical understanding of the term. Quite a bit like parenting in many senses. One thought that I've been observing uh during this uh thus far short experience of being a parent this seven weeks is that um because of course you always hear about how your priori- priorities change when you become a parent but uh the experience of or or the sense of like i feel that i've had enough well actually i could use the word leisure just to try it out that uh, that at this point in my life i've had enough focus on leisure and it doesn't mean that there will be no more leisure in my my life but it's like at this point it feels that like that it's not something that i need to direct myself towards it's more like a gift that that uh, life may grant me but but focusing on someone who really needs me and needs my focus and needs my presence shifts the priorities in the sense that it doesn't seem meaningful to to focus on like getting more leisure or experience of leisure for myself and uh, i don't want to downplay the meaning of of leisure because i really appreciate that the privilege of having like well basically like being born uh in a place like this in a time like this the the amount of just like peace and and like being carefree is something that I hold in in great value, but also like having experience that I think in a sense might even make it easier to release myself into into something else now that I'm starting to become a parent or have become a parent and starting to understand what it actually means. Okay, so, you know, as one parent, I've, I've been in the parent business for 36 years or something like that. It's not a qualification, it's just a description. So if I'm a parent, are you a parent? This is a good thing to wonder about. And uh, I would suggest, I, I'm, I made up a word that I think describes your status in life. Parentling. Now this suggests that you're very new at it. And that most of what it means to be a parent hasn't come anywhere near you yet. Right. So if that's true, probably it's a good idea to have a word that can that 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 maintains an understanding of limits, you know, that there's tremendous limits right now on your understanding of what's being asked of you and what it's doing to you. And, uh, you know, uh, to speak with some authority about being a parent seven weeks into it. (laughs) 
it's understandable, but I would call this, it's a rookie's mistake. You know, the truth is that mostly you're doing this, you're brailing, right? You're feeling your way around, uh, hoping that you're not doing too much crazy stuff. And, um, and of course, I, I shouldn't say, of course, I don't know if your place is like my place. There's this idea that you're automatically completely capable and that you don't really need <laughs> what anybody's real counsel or help because you're a complete parent now. Not that you know everything, but you're totally a parent. Well, this, this is clearly not true. You're barely a parent. You're, you're in the, uh, you're in the prince, the, <laughs> you are, and the amazing thing is you've been thrown into it, uh, in, in a severe circumstance. And yet this, this confers upon you the ability perhaps to deal with hospitals, but it doesn't, it doesn't augment your, your capacities regarding being a parent. Here's why I say that. Because the, the, the principal parenting job in a sane culture is to get out of the way almost all the time. So your job is custodial, meaning that principally you should be the care and feeding branch of childcare. But the psychic and uh, emotional and poetic and mythic life of your, your child, sorry, boy or girl, I've forgotten. Girl, I think. Girl. Girl. That the that aspect of your, your daughter's life is not really available to you. You you can't do much. I shouldn't I should say it differently. You can have a lot of consequence, but most of that consequence you won't really intend. It'll be kind of incidental or accidental or sort of besides the point. So and why is that? It's nothing to do with you personally. It's simply the fact that when you when you're in a culture that has been reduced from a village minded culture to a nuclear family culture i mean it's barely a culture uh, again i don't know anything really about the nuts and bolts of finnish life but certainly over here i'm not sure that we didn't invent nuclear families and then spread it across the world you know in a, in a terrible viral fashion but one of the great consequences has been a great diminishment of the role of extra familial people in your child's life. It's very much constrained, incidental, and besides the point, when it should be the other way around. The way it should go is, there's just two of you for now. There's only two of you. There'll never be more than two of you. I'm talking about parents now. Whereas the honorary parents, the not just grandparents I'm talking about, but godparents and honorary aunts and uncles and so forth, these could be, these could number in the, t in the scores or the hunt and they properly should. And these are the people whose principal responsibility is the, the nurturing of your child's psychic and spiritual life. Why is that? Why make the distinction? Because as parents, you simply have too much of a certain kind of investment in the outcome, right? It's very hard to look at your child and not see your your uh, opportunity to to make from a standing start a tiny perfect life it's pretty hard to avoid the seduction of the arrangement but if you're living in a culture that was village minded the seduction wouldn't even be there 
you'd simply be entrusted with the feeding, right? The changing and a certain other particulars of that order. And when the time came, which wouldn't be right away, but when the time, when the child learns to speak, for example, and remember and begin to interact at that level, your, your, the primacy in your child that you occupy in your child's life would begin to be diminished. The beautiful thing about this is as long as you're willing to take a back seat in that aspect of your child's life, you are more than qualified to be front and center in the psychic life of many other people's children. That's what a sane society looks like. So you're disqualified with your own kids, but very qualified with everybody else's kids, provided you take the hint that life is trying to give you and and have some humility when it comes to what you can achieve with your child. What you can achieve with other people's kids is is frankly much vaster. So, I mean, this is a very anti-Western, not anti-Western, it's a non-Western understanding. Uh, I'm not sure that as Western people, we who are kind of of European extraction, if we have any real living memory of what a village-minded way of raising children is. I mean, I've never seen it in, in, in close proximity to where I live. I had to experience it by the drastic shift from, you know, traveling to other places and, and seeing the, what, you know, we would easily mistake for, um, for uh, the lack of seriousness in the parental generation when it came to the, the inner life of their kids. What it actually was, I realizing now, was an understanding that, that the lion's share of the care of a soul skips a generation. So it's between grandparents and grandchildren, and it's between your generation and then generation that you can't even dream of yet called your children's children. That's where the principal circuitry lands, it seems to me. So, I mean, there's no hostility in there. There's no, there's no rampage against the current order. It's just a lament that we've, we've lost so much of a collective understanding of, of what we're here to do that by default, we assume primary and principal responsibility and presence in our children's lives without any real capacity to occupy that kind of responsibility, you know, full-time, hyper-full-time. Yeah, it is indeed very difficult to even imagine uh, different ways of what being a parent could mean on the level of, of experienced and lived life because we are so embedded in the way things are in our culture. And I really like the the coin you phrased of parentling because uh, yeah, I've really one thing that I've thought mm-hmm. about uh, already in the time of the pregnancy has been that it will take the rest of my life to figure out what this means, and of course, it will remain unfinished in the end. Yeah, figuring out is overstated. I mean, the likelihood of you ever figuring anything out is remote. What you'll have is provisional um, fits of clarity. That's what's available to you. You'll have a temporary fit of certainty and clarity, which eventually life will take away from you again. And what you learn, begin to learn is those moments of clarity, they're the exceptions. They're not the rule. They're the exceptions. 
and they're not really supposed to be there all the time. What you're supposed to be is ambivalent most of the time, kind of taking instruction, but from more than one direction. So it doesn't allow you to occupy the emperor's position in your own household, right? It, it, you're, let's say you're, you're relieved of the obligation to be omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Sadly, if you don't feel that there's a real community, no, not, that's not the right phrase. If you haven't worked very hard at establishing the rudiments of a village-mindedness, a kind of community around your little life, and then a child comes to you as she has, you'll be very challenged to, to find a way to entrust that little life to the, to the, you know, the psychic care of others. You'll be very challenged to do it. And, and that's where the poverty visits us. The poverty visits us in our certainty that we know our child best and that our child came to us for a reason and, and in a sense really belongs to us and, you know, all that sort of thing. And uh, it doesn't show any sign of really changing, even though the signs are very clear that it doesn't work. Very, very clear indeed. But, um, but us doing the math and deciding maybe we're doing it wrong doesn't really seem to happen. I'll tell you one little story and then see what you think. So many, many time over the last 15 or 20 years, people in interviews or just, I'll get emails every day from strangers, people I've never met. And they're asking me basically, should they have kids? And typically they, they tend obviously to be younger people. And why are they asking at all? And why are they asking me? And why are most of them young women? It's a very interesting arrangement, though, and it really speaks to some kind of terrible disarray that the world is in the shape that it's in, and these young women are very uncertain that that it's a it's a properly moral act bring it quote new life into a world like this, etc. And they're wondering how they can possibly um, justify the instinct and the desire they have to have one of their own or more than one of their own. And generally speaking, my suggestion, not advice, simply observation, will go something like this. You want to find a way to protect your child from the world before your child's even born. This is why you're asking about this. It's one of the things that's going on here. So I would suggest to you that if, if your instinct is to try to make a perfect person out of your child and leave the work of trying to make a better world to other people, you've got the order reversed. If you want your child to, to acquire some kind of sanity in a relatively sane place, you have to work on the sanity of the place. And working on the sanity of your child is not a surrogate for doing that. You see... So you have to be a citizen first and a parentling second. I mean, I just arbitrarily make that kind of distinction. I, and in actual living life, um, the distinctions are much harder to recognize, obviously, ongoingly. I know that. But uh, if you're going to put an emphasis and an understanding of where the principal aspect of your energy should go, it should go to making a better world. 
that's the way you protect your your child from a crazy world is to try to make the world less crazy, not try to make perfect children who are somehow defended against the world. Mm. Yeah, that resonates with how I perceive health in, in a very broad sense, like including mental health and all other kinds of health, that health is not uh, an individual thing, but it's, I imagine humans in a, in a like mycelial sense, and I imagine that our well-being is something that's born in our relations to both other other humans and also other forms of life and how or what kinds of relationships we have determine it seems to me quite a bit like uh, our relationship to to what's happening inside us so so basically yeah like i imagine quite a bit of what people call call depression come from the difficulty of having a good relationship to whatever is happening inside you and in the world around you and and it becomes uh i don't know easier is probably not the correct term for this but but like uh maybe uh, the term meaning would be good here that that it it becomes a meaningful life tends to happen uh through through what would be a good english term for this That the the kinds the kinds of relationships that we have seems to uh, shape the kind of meaning we experience in this life. True. There, there's no such thing as meaningless. There's no such thing. Meaning, but we're meaning making beings. That's what we do before we wake up. We're already in the process of establishing what stuff means and cause and effect and all of that sort of thing. So it's it's important that that like to talk about a meaningful life, you might as well call it an eventful life, because they come to the same thing. There's a certain degree of inevitability to meaning. The question becomes: Are you going to participate in the making of meaning? Or are you going to be passively on the receiving end of a kind of fateful resignation that there's nothing fundamentally that you can do? Well, I, you know, I decided a long time ago I would probably do the first. I probably participate to the extent that I'm able in in with a, a a high degree of discipline and inquiry in the matter to contribute without without mastery the uh, the gathering together of a story that constitutes the meaning uh that my little life has been capable of up until now and at, just as you say The principal architect of the meaning of my life is not me. I'm a participant, but I'm not the master architect. Number one. Number two, we have the word in English, awake, right? Which uh, a lot of people love to use it now to either describe themselves or describe certain aspects of the contemporary, quote unquote, social justice culture. And I'm going to suggest to you that to, to complete misapprehension of what the word etymologically means. The condition of being awake, the word tells you plainly, has nothing to do with the opposite of asleep. It has everything to do with this. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word. So it's probably in the same 
linguistic family as Finnish to some degree, perhaps. It sounds, anyway, it's, it's conceivable to me that you'd recognize what I'm about to say. So you have, a, a, you have this thing that happens after you die, which if enough people care enough about you, they'll get together and with the benefit of some alcohol and, and, and sorrow and everything, they start to talk about you. Not all the time, but they talk about you and not everything they say is true, but they're talking about you. And in so doing, they're beginning to assemble the meaning of your life. And you're not there to superintend it because that's none of your responsibility. Your responsibility is to release the meaning of your life and entrust it to the people who are still alive when you're finally not. And that's how you become an ancestor, you see by your willingness to to release control or mastery or the voice of authority. The condition of being awake means to not only be mindful of, but to acquiesce to the scheme of consequence that fans out behind everything in your life that you've done, everything you didn't do, everything you said, everything you didn't say, everything you failed to say when you should have, and so on so on and so on. Awake means to, to be claimed by the scheme of consequence, intended and especially unintended. Of the wake is what the word awake means, of the wake. See? So, so this is what we've been talking about for the last five or ten minutes is the condition of being awake. And one of the, one of the signal qualities of it is humility. I mean, but a real working humility that you realize that you haven't been there for much of your own life. You've been worried. You've been preoccupied. You've been crazy. You've been hysterical. You've been drunk and disorderly. You've been intoxicated. You've been way too sure of yourself. You've been hopelessly sur- pre- paralyzed by indecision. You've been, you've been in the, in the clutch of lust. You've been, you know, romantically distracted. You've been. See what I'm saying? I mean, this is not the, a list of qualities you'd entrust the running of a country to. And yet we entrust the running of a life to these qualities all the time. So it's just proper then when you're seeing your life in three dimensions. And having a child helps this happen, by the way. When you see your life in three dimensions, a lot of it is, is you're, you're completely dumbfounded that anything's been able to happen that hasn't been just one crazy thing after another that actually has a bit of a, a shape to it. Since you were so inconstant in your attention. Hmm. Uh, you referred a bit ago to the term ambivalence, and I'm going to read a quote from you mm-hmm. where you say, the capacity to entertain a diversity of possibilities or tendencies at the same time without recourse to premature and often unnecessary decision to vanquish plurality for the sake of certainty. Well, the quote that you've read is right on the money. I mean, I'm, I stand by it, what it says there. The condition of being ambivalent is not the condition of being paralyzed by indecision. Ambivalence is a skill, particularly in a culture that's that's got a toxic relationship to mastery and control. Ambivalence is the willingness not to be masterful in a circumstance in which you clearly are not. 
ambivalence is the willingness to be challenged by different possibilities at the same moment without collapsing in the direction of certainty just for the sake of saying that you believe something. I mean, most of your beliefs are temporary, really, and they can't bear a lot of scrutiny. I don't mean you personally because I don't know you at all, but this is worth thinking about, that your principal convictions are vagrants. Do you know the word vagrant? Like wandering, related to wandering? It's slight, It has a, more of a tone of wandering because you're homeless. <laughs> it means more that. Yeah. When you, when you fail at being omnipotent in your own life, you finally have a chance to live it for real in its three dimensions. You know, and, and there's room for a lot of other people to participate in it, including your kids. But you have to let go of the idea that you know what you're doing. And so you have provisional certainties, you know, that get you over certain speed bumps of life. But that's what they are. They're temporary. You know, the, the, the big one is not temporary, as far as we know, meaning death. Everything that, is, that, that occurs prior to your death is temporary. So what would it look like if you actually knew that? and actually proceeded accordingly. What would happen to your capacity to worry, for example? What would happen to your capacity to be paralyzed if everything was temporary? What would happen to your capacity to be sure of yourself? Would it be necessary any longer? Would you have to banish all the other possibilities to maintain this steady line? See, I'm suggesting to you, probably not. Probably if you knew how temporary this was and how quickly the end comes. The likelihood is your you'd life would not look like it does today. So I could go out on a limb and suggest that the likelihood is that for the most people who are listening to this, their life is lived as if it's going to go on indefinitely. And that's a shocking lack of understanding. But, you know, every day I worked in the, in the death trade when I was taking care of people who were dying. Every day, people were absolutely shocked and bewildered and, se- and had a sense of betrayal that life had turned against them because they were dying as if this was never going to happen. How do you possibly explain such a, a devastating miscalculation of the givens of life? Hmm, I think this was actually function uh, as a good segue to talking a bit more about death Uh, so, yeah, you mentioned your experience in what you call the death trade. You were in uh, involved in palliative care. Um, yeah. And uh, you also wrote the book Die Wise, uh, mm-hmm. uh, talking about your experiences there. So maybe a good question might be that uh, what would be for people who are uh, not uh, aware of your work? What would be some of the main points of entry regarding how you view uh, our cultures? Uh, of course, remembering, yeah, that it's not necessarily the same culture that you live in, the same culture that I live live in, but still, like, if we sort of generalize there, uh, a good entry point to how you think about death and our relationship to death and dying. I think the last thing I was just talking about is is as good as any. 
I'll give you, I'll tell you in the form of a story. So I'm teaching in this relatively small town. Maybe this is 20 years ago now. It's a conference for all the local healthcare professionals. So there's maybe 50 people in the room maximum. I know who the doctors are because I can tell by the way that they're listening or, or not listening to me. And at one point, one of the physicians, and he's a young guy, puts up his hand. And I say, yes. And he says, you're really making a big deal over nothing. He said, everybody knows they're going to die. He just went like that. He crossed his arms, very satisfied with himself, as if he'd you know, defeated me with one sentence. And everybody else in the room looked over at him and then looked back at me and wondered what happens now. Now that the obvious has been established. I said to him, let's do this. I mean, you're, you're fairly sure of what you just said. I can tell. So let's do this. Let's just put it to a vote. What do you mean? He said, I said, well, I'm just going to ask everybody if, it's, if what you said is true, is true. Let's just find out. And he just went like this. She said, hey, go ahead. So I said, everybody in favor of the proposition that everybody knows that they're going to die. Please raise your hand. So at first, nobody knew what to do. You could see people were sitting, they kind of looked at each other, they're kind of laughing a little bit and, and very unsure. Why? Because they didn't know the answer? No. Because they'd never wondered about the question. That's what was going on. And I knew that, you see. So, but eventually, with great hesitation, almost every hand, I would say every hand in the room went up. So he looked around and looked at me and said, See, I went there too. I said, okay, so far so good for you. I would just ask you this. Could you give me some proof of the thing you're talking about? Proof of what? He said, proof. You just said everybody knows they're going to die. I'm just asking you to prove it. If it's so obvious, it shouldn't be hard. You're an evidence-based practitioner as a scientific person. You've got a lot of training. You should be able to do this in a couple of sentences. So just prove to me that everybody knows they're going to die. And he says, it's ridiculous what you're asking. Why? I said. He said, because everybody's going to die. It's just, it's a given. I said, yeah, but that's not what you said. You didn't say everybody's going to die. You said everybody knows they're going to die. That's a completely different declaration. And one does not produce the other automatically or necessarily or inevitably, or maybe at all. So I can see that you're not going to try to prove it to me. So let me wonder out loud on our mutual behalf about this. I said, I'm old enough to remember when in the United States they had a big oil uh, shortage, oil and gas shortage. I think this was in the 80s. And uh, people went crazy. Nobody had ever seen it before. Why? Why do people go crazy? Well, because they were pretty sure that there was enough oil and gas forever and ever, amen, for everybody. Not they were pretty sure. They knew it was true. How could you tell that they knew it? By how they behaved, in particular, by their buying habits, the kind of stuff they bought that required fossil fuels. Based on that behavior, it's reasonable to suggest that all these people knew that there was enough oil and gas forever. 
Now, I'm not saying it was true. It was never true. It wasn't true then, and it's less true now. But still, they knew it, though. They knew a thing that wasn't true. And you could see in their behavior, their daily behavior, that they governed themselves according to this thing that they knew. So take out oil and gas in the story and put in dying. And the question is, can you tell by the behavior of the people around you this very day where you are in Finland, where I am here in Canada? Can either of us tell by observing our fellows that they know that they're going to die? Is there anything in their behavior that signals to you categorically that they are governed by this understanding, that they're influenced by it, that it has a presence in their life at all? Do they know it or do they fear it or mistrust it or second guess it or debate it or argue with it instead? So I'm suggesting to you in Anglo North America, where I am, there's very little evidence that people know that they're going to die. You could ask them and most of them will say yes, but that doesn't mean they know it. It just means they know how to answer your question, quote, properly. But in terms of how they conduct themselves, there's no sign. If people knew they were going to die, I would never have had a job in the death trade. There would be nothing for me to do. It would come to this. I sit across from a dying person and I would say, any questions? And they would say, so this is it? I would say, yep. They would say, anything else to wait for? I said, well, you know, more of the same and, you know, worsening over time. But no, you're basically, you're looking at it. This is, this is the situation. This is the deal. Okay, then leave me your business card. If I got any questions, I'll call you. That's the way it would go. But it never went that way. I mean, virtually never. Most of the time, it was antidepressants and sedation and misery and sorrows, a little bit, grief, almost not at all, uh, complaint, belligerence, hostility against life, hostility against God, whatever it was. That's not a sign that's, that peop- that's what's happening is what people knew was going to happen. That's a sign of people whose every expectation has been thwarted and frustrated and denied. You've also talked quite a bit about the reluctance of people to acknowledge the reality of dying, both the people who are supposed to be dying and also the people taking care of them. Would you talk a bit about that? What do you mean talk a bit about it? What is it that you have witnessed? What what exactly happens when people are not dying but doing something else? Ah. Okay. Well, to, to answer this question, I have to generalize a little bit across you know a lot of different kinds of experience. But I think I can make some some observations that won't betray the people that I I saw. Well, first of all, I would start with the people who are the paid professionals. Generally speaking, they weren't very good with their speech. What do you mean? Oh, they they obviously could talk, but but they had a language where the realities of dying almost never appeared. They had this vague, obfuscating, half-speak 
that they employed all the time. And the half-speak took the form of taking the edges off the reality, not quite saying it in its fullness, somehow um, understanding that this was a compassionate thing to do. Now, to my mind, that's like being an, a car mechanic. And I, you're, you're the mechanic. I bring my car to you because it's not working. You go underneath the hood. You change a couple of things, but not all the way. Just a little bit, just to get me out the door. So I have to come back next week for another adjustment. And you send me out the door and so on. When you half talk, but when you half articulate, when you half describe, because you're trying to be gentle or considerate of, of a person's feelings or or fears or whatever it is, you're not doing them any favors. But they did it all the time. I mean, all the time. And uh, and then and then the dying people often colluded with them. So if they felt reassured in some fashion, if they felt supported, if they felt that the doctor or the nurse or whoever it was was in their corner because they underspoke these things, then they would feel the doctor or the nurse had done a very good job. So this is a terrible arrangement where nobody's challenging anybody. And of course, as you might imagine, I tried to challenge that the practice and I was tolerated, but not for very long with the understanding that the compassion, they owned the compassion and I somehow was monstrous by virtue of trying to find a language where the realities of dying would actually appear. For example, it was very difficult to get anybody working in the death trade to use the word death or dead or die. I mean, it's, it's kind of odd, no? I mean, it should strike you as a little bit strange. And you might think then, well, wait, there's a lot of perfectly good synonyms for die. Are there? Give me one. <laughs> and we would sit here for a minute. And you, I mean, even if Eng English is not your first language, you could handle it. I know you could. And you would, you would choose these alleged synonyms. But none of them are synonyms. They're not even approximations. They're bad translations instead. Where the first consequence of the translation is the realities of dying are gone and the upside is accentuated. The, uh, the possibilities are accentuated. But not the, not the givens. No, no, no. Those are, they're left out of the equation altogether. I suggest you go and get your affair, go home and get your affairs in order. Used to be a pretty standard term that people would use. Get your affairs in order. What is that supposed to mean? Well, you know, take care of your stuff, you know, all that sort of thing. But wait, that's the priority. You've just told me that I have some, you know, six to nine months to live. And your first recommendation is to take care of my stuff. So, I mean, at some point, sometimes you don't know what to say because the, 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 the allegation of compassion so much misses the reality. Un, doesn't, it's a malpractice when it comes to the reality, you see. So this gives you some idea of what it looks like amongst all the people who are sitting around the table when somebody's dying. And so I don't exempt the dying people. They, they, they colluded with this much more often than not. They were... They were pleased to be unchallenged. And then, for example, people would say, if I was you know, bringing up some of these things, 
the feeling would be that it was premature. What does that mean? Well, the, the patient's not ready to talk about the, the fact that they're dying. So what? What do you mean, so what? You can't say, so what? The people have to be ready. But wait a second. Did you ask them to be ready for chemotherapy? Did you not talk about chemotherapy until they were ready to talk about it? Did you? How about surgery? Did you just don't even mention surgery until they ask you about it? If at all? But why, when it comes to what I do for a living, all of a sudden the patient has to be ready? When in this in the medical interventionist uh, model, nobody has to be ready. So it's a bizarre prerequisite that dying people have to be ready to be dying people in order to qualify for the dying treatment. Yeah, one thing that's really remained with me uh, from the documentary on, on your work in the death trade, Grief Walker, was where you were with the parents of a, of a baby and uh, how you were handling the situation where they were constantly being offered new treatments that might help. And, and then you at some point told them that really your baby is dying and if you want to be present for this fact then you need to be present for that fact instead of just like uh, accepting the strands of hope that keep being uh, offered to you and uh, this of course like hits quite home uh, right now Because, because of what I just experienced with our baby, because yeah, the Especially first yeah. couple of weeks, the first couple of weeks, mm -hmm. we spent with our baby in the intensive care unit, and uh, it was unclear whether she would survive. And uh, yeah, I was thinking quite a bit about you and your work, and I was reading your book Die Wise there, and uh, trying to get a grasp of like how would I recognize if that point uh, became real in my life, how would I recognize recognize the situation mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. I need to be present to her not surviving, to her dying, instead of just like holding on to strands of hope? And uh, luckily, we didn't get to that point. But yeah, it was something that I, I thought about quite a bit. And it was mm -hmm. a very dark place to be in. And at the same time, it was a very... Well, something that straightened out many priorities in life and, and brought us, uh, you know, more like uh, there's this Finnish word, Vereslihainen, which is like, uh, you know, the, the flesh that's under your skin when you're really like living with your defenses down. You're in that kind of a situation. And it, yeah, it it makes you more connected to the actualities of life and uh It was a really uh, profound experience of being simultaneously like there was a lot of fear, but also constant uh, intense feeling of grati gratitude for being able to to be here in, in this experience. And uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any mm -hmm. point I want to make with that, but I just wanted to share share that and uh, to say that there it was impactful to, to well, have allow, allow me work. to respond to it then yeah yeah do you know when you are in a neonatal unit in a hospital which I assume is where you were 
And nobody really knows if your child's going to live or die. But that's all future tense, that language. What about present tense? Are they living or are they dying right now? Because the answer to that question will determine your, your protocol, your etiquette, your, your existential orientation. It really will. However you answer that. See? So I suggest you in those moments, you are looking into the face of God. That's what that is. And it's beyond good or bad or happy or sad. It completely eliminates these pseudo op- opposites, right? And it does two things at the same time. It simplifies things. No, it clarifies things without simplifying them. It doesn't make anything any easier, but it removes most of the bullshit. And you're not left with much else. Because whether your child is living or dying is not a matter of your opinion. Your opinion, frankly, doesn't matter. Are you willing to learn is the question. Because you're in school now. And let's find out if you're willing to pay the price for this kind of learning. And when you're in that kind of school, the price is very high. Why? Because you're paying with all of your certainties. You thought you knew what life was for. You thought you knew what justice was. You thought you knew what cause and effect meant. You thought you knew what good enough was, what what humanity means, what humane treatment is like. You thought you knew all these things. You thought you knew what mercy was. You thought you knew that, you know, bad things don't happen to good people. And she's not even a good person yet. She's too young. I mean, it's you don't even know what to call her. She's barely here. Is she here? Even. Has she, has she the ability to be here yet? What's your understanding? Are you waiting for something? Is it pending? Is, is there a person there? How do you interact with that? Are you protecting yourself just in case she dies and you, you, you'd never be able to handle it? Or, or are you protecting each other? Or are you, are you observing what you're saying and what you're not saying? And what kind of words you're avoiding? And what kind of words you're using over and over again? In these, you know, as these hours prolong into days and the uncertainties don't dispel and, you know, because this is how you find out what you really have inside you. And that's why I say a moment like that is looking God in the face without going blind. Hard to add anything to that. You referred also to grief, and you've talked about in your work about grief illiteracy. What is that? I think it's a pretty well-chosen phrase. It's, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But uh, I could be its its voice for a moment and articulate it. I chose the term. It's 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 part of a two-term package, if you will. I was trying to find a way to categorize in a quick and easy fashion that people could actually hear the principal problems that North Americans bring to their dying time. And the phrase I came up with was death phobic and grief illiterate. 
So these are fundamentally different kinds of conditions. Death phobic. Well, that refers to phobos is the Greek word for fear. So it's, it's an indication of a kind of almost constitutional inability to renegotiate one's relationship to the inevitable conclusion of one's life, right? Fear is, is, I mean, it's not the most inevitable consequence of learning that you're dying. It isn't. It's not a given. It's not absolutely mandatory. This is very interesting that fear is, is given all kinds of respect, but a kind of similarly scaled sorrow is deemed to be not necessarily that helpful. It's a very interesting uh, prejudice that the contemporary culture where I live tends to carry. So death phobic. Yes. How about grief phobic? No, I don't think it's grief phobic at all. Oh, so you mean it's grief capable? No, not at all. Well then, then what? Well, grief illiterate means that you had the capacity to, or at least the opportunity to learn grief repeatedly during the course of your life. And the chances are very good that you were defended against it. Let me give you a standard defense against grief. Well, I don't want to just be sad all the time. I don't want to just wallow in it. That's a typical word that's used from the farm, right? That's the word wallow comes from farming practices. It means to be constantly um, submerged in this uh, condition or this liquid. That's basically what it means. So you're thinking that once you become grief literate, you'll have no choice but to be in, in, you know, wild and impossible to live phase of grief for the rest of your life. That's what you're afraid of. Yeah. No, we're back to fear again. And in actual fact, that's not the way grief happens at all. Grief is an understanding. It's not the annihilation of your understanding. It is your understanding. Grief arises as a direct consequence, I think, of the following. So you really didn't think these days were coming. Now, it's one thing to talk about you as a dying person. It's much more challenging to talk about somebody you love as a dying person and you not be the dying person, just kind of being on the outside looking in, which you just were. This is going to sound a lot different to you now than it would have sounded, you know, three months ago. So here we go. (coughs) Excuse me. So now let's say that you've had different understandings of what it means to love somebody during the course of your life. You had a child's understanding, you know, which is just total, total all the time. Everything's great. Da, 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 da. And then you had experiences where your parents weren't loving to you all the time. So you had to figure out, okay, they tell me that they love me all the time, but it, sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes it doesn't seem to be so. So what does that mean? You got to figure that out and find a way to live it as a kid. Oh, and then you come to find that you're, you find a certain degree of affectionate uh, uh, attraction to another person. And then if you're old enough, yet there's a physical component to that too. And, and you call that love because what else are you going to call it? And, and it seems permanent because it seems so total and it eclipses everything else. But you know it's not permanent, but it takes a long time to learn that. 
So then there's other, then you say, I do to somebody and you do make a deal and you're going to go the long haul. And then maybe you make a kid with this person or maybe three or four kids. And maybe you find a degree of work that you really love and use that word to describe that too. What am I saying with all this? I'm saying the chances are very good that you entered into a, let's call it a love deal with each of these things or people with the understanding that entering into it, you had no plan to exit it. It was all a one-way street in forever. And not one of these things lasts forever. Not one. So what happens to your ability to love when you begin to realize at some point in your life that you're not that good at forever? That you just can't do it, actually. And then hopefully you realize that even your ability to love all the most admirable things about you are fitful. And that by virtue of loving the people and the things and the times and the ideas that you've loved, you haven't done a whole lot for those things. You did a lot for yourself in the act of loving them. But it's not clear that the, that the love really translated as you probably were hoping that it would. Now you're glimpsing the end of your days. Oh, you're not sick, but you're just old enough to take seriously that you're not going to last and to let it in. And the first thing that happens is your ability to love is completely devastated because the forever thing is gone and it's probably never coming back. Can you love that way is the question. Can you love as if it's not going to last? Not as if it always will. Because if you can, you've finally begun to understand what grief is because you've learned it. Grief is an understanding. It's not an affliction. It's a capability. It's ability to look life squarely in the face and say, you know, everything considered, this is pretty good. It's just not what I thought. And it's not a problem with life that it's not what I thought. It's a problem with my thinking. You assume some responsibility for getting it wrong so often in your life. You see? So I think ultimately grief operationalizes in your life in the following way. Now you've got a daughter, right? That was never true until very recently. And it looks like she's going to stay around for a while. That wasn't obvious either. That wasn't a guarantee. But for the moment, it looks like it is. And some part of you is going to look at her for the rest of your life with uh, some uncertainty about whether or not she's here for keeps. That'll just be part of the deal. See? So how are you going to let that in? And how are you going to love her that way? In a way that most parents are never asked to do. And those parents are grateful that they never end up in the position that you've already been in as a parent. What does your love look like now? Does it look like forever and ever, amen? Does it look like a, a greeting card that you could buy at the at the uh, drugstore and send to a friend? Does it look like any poem that you've ever, what does it look like? You see, do you have the capacity to put it into words such that you can hear yourself say it? What kind of understanding of life have you begun to submit to 
now that life refuses to submit to you. Because that's the beginning of grief. And it's not being defeated. It's just being corrected. And once grief has informed your understanding of love, I think that's when you begin to love for real. Because all the all the limits to your love are present now. You're not pretending. You're not loving like a seven-year-old. You're loving like a grown-up. That's the beginning. That's that's the that's the ability that grief gives you to fully inhabit your days. Everything else is maybe or one foot in, one foot out, or or hope, or you know. But grief doesn't need any hope. Grief is an amazingly trustworthy companion. But it's something you have to do. It's a performed something. It's not a felt something. Because you think grief feels only one way, but I'm promising you it's got a range of feelings. But in terms of its fundamental consequence in your life, you can grieve and, and, and be laughing at the same time. And you will find that. That's one of the things having kids can teach you is that you can look at them and you can be like those two people that show up at funerals and weddings, one group that's laughing all the time and one group that's crying all the time. And if you really understand life, you'll be in both of those groups back and forth, back and forth in your life, laughing in times that are supposed to be sad and sorrowful and weeping at times that are supposed to be happy. Not to be contrary, to make, instead to make sure that the whole story is appearing in this moment when the, when the bouncers, do you have this expression, bouncers? Like at nightclubs, the guys who let that, yeah. the guys in and all that? Okay, so these allegedly happy events have emotional bouncers, right? And sadness is not allowed in happy events. But that's crazy. Sadness absolutely belongs in happy events because that's what grief is. Just like in allegedly sad events, you have people who can sit in the corner and laugh and laugh because life's like that too. So that's grief, you know, very quickly said. Okay. Mm. There's quite a bunch of questions that will remain unasked and perhaps some of them will be asked in a coming session. Sure. But uh, I have uh, five like really short questions that you can give really short answers to that I try to do in the end of every session. It can be just one word or one sentence or whatever before we wrap I up. See. Uh, so the mm-hmm. first is, would you share an early memory that has affected the course of your life? I'm sitting on the stairs and it's Christmas Eve. And uh, I'm upstairs and the parents don't know I'm there. And I know I've been forbidden to come downstairs before morning because I'm not supposed to ruin the surprise, but they don't tell me that's why. There's just something mysterious and otherworldly is going on downstairs with the grown-ups are participating in and the children are excluded from until the light of day. And I'm sitting on the steps and I'm so excited that it feels like my chest is going to literally break in half and whatever's in there is going to just burst up. That's the first time I had an understanding that there's something to life that's not entirely visible, but very consequential. Next. A thing that inspires you. 
<laughs> oh God, just one. Uh, let me think. Um, okay, I have an old dog here on the farm. He's been here his whole life. He just lived through his 10th winter of minus 35 or something like that. And he still agrees to be here. I can't even figure out why anymore, but he does. And he still agrees to have us in his life. I can't figure out why anymore, but he does. And that's, that's good enough. Next. A thing that brings out fear in you. Uh, trying to make an internet connection work when something goes crazy. Next. If things go well, where will you be five years from now? <laughs> you know, if things go well is code for stuff I can't anticipate. So, I, I mean, I know where the question is supposed to lead. It, I, it assumes, for example, that I'd still be here. But uh, I don't know if that's things going well results in me being here or things going crazy results in me being here. Um, it's not that obvious to me, you know. But um, if I'm spared, as they say in Ireland, should I be spared? Uh, I, I would hope that I have some basic capability to make myself understood. That would be things working out. Finally. And the last one, your greetings or your prayers or your wishes uh, to the human race. Oh, man, it's too vast. You know, the scale is too vast. And yeah. The problems in translation are, you know, it's proper, it's proper to respect them all, you know. So it would be like this. You know, I'll, I, I can't tell everybody anything. But if I tell you something, you tell somebody something, that somebody tells somebody, da, 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 and it makes the rounds, uh, maybe that's what we have to settle for, and maybe that's good. So uh, it would just be this, something like, occasionally, it's good to pray. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's just good to pray, because you can hear yourself not entirely being okay. And so I'll, I'll suggest you a prayer from the early medieval times, that comes from Provence, that will help, if only to clarify. And it's easy to remember because it's so short. And it goes like this. God, help me. My boat is so small and your sea so immense. Thank you. I really Welcome. appreciate your time and uh, wishing you all the best. Thank you, man. You too. You too. You got a lot, a lot of work is apparently in front of you. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. Uh, quite a bit of interesting threads that would have been worth pursuing, but uh, maybe another time. Mm, just as an end note, um, my next episode has already, already been recorded. Uh, my guest there was drug policy activist Ethan Nadelman, who uh, founded the Drug Policy Alliance, which has been instrumental in reforming 
drug policy both in the US and around the world, leading by example. And uh, I have a couple of episodes in my other podcasts in Finnish that I will put out before that one. But uh, yeah, just to let you know. And uh, yeah, um, please subscribe to the podcast on any services that you use, social media and uh, the streaming platforms on YouTube. And also please consider becoming a Patreon if you appreciate what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, thank you.